Welcome to Lakeshore. We're so glad that you're with us today. Welcome to our Smyrna campus. We're glad, we're glad you guys are with us. Anybody connecting with us online, we're thankful that you have found us there. Uh, we want to thank our children that participated in our videos that we did for the Christmas season. Uh, and we want to thank Dean McCondiche who uh, filmed those for us, uh, taped those for us so that we could show them. They did a great job on that. Let's thank our kids and their parents again for doing that for us. All month long, we've been in a series called The Gift, and we started out with looking at the preparations for the gift, all that God had to do to prepare to send this gift of this baby in the manger. And then we looked at how our name is on the gift. God sent this gift for whosoever would believe, for whosoever would accept the offer of the gift. Last week, we talked about the reality of the gift and all that it really involved and what it really looked like. Even though we see the beautiful pictures of the nativity, it was a hard thing that they went through uh, for this gift to be brought into the world. And today, we're going to be talking about the response to the gift. I, I know as a parent, I did this. And now, even as a grandparent, when we open gifts at Christmas... And my wife has worked really hard to pick out the gift. I'm always as surprised as the recipient when they open the gift because she's the one that got it and picked it out and wrapped it up. And I don't always even know what we gave the person until the gift is open. So I get to share the excitement, too, and the response of people opening the gifts uh, for a lot of the gifts. But here's the thing. I always watch the expressions, especially on the children and the grandchildren's faces, when they open the gift because I want to see their response. Aren't you that way? I mean, you've sacrificed. You spent a lot of money. Some of you spent more than you should have that you didn't have, right? Uh, and you went into debt to give them this thing. And sometimes when they open the gift, you're a little disappointed at their response to the gift. They're not so overjoyed like you thought they were going to be when they open it. But sometimes it's so much fun. You see the excitement. You see how thrilled they are to get the gift. And the response just makes you feel great. But you see the response can either make you feel great or it can leave something of disappointment in your mind and in your heart when you don't get the response that you want. I'm convinced our Father is that way with us when it comes to the gift that he's given us. There's a lot of different responses to receiving gifts. We've got a tradition in our family that uh, my mother-in-law, Lois, started a long time ago. Uh, she would get everybody socks for Christmas. Now, that's not all she would get us, but she always gave us socks. So they, they would all, almost always be in a Christmas gift bag with tissue paper in the top, and they all looked exactly the same. And when we gave out gifts, everybody got one of these Christmas bags, and we all pretty well knew every time this was the socks that we were getting. And you might think, well, that's a little disappointing. Now, for the grandkids, for the little ones especially, sometimes they, that would be disappointing. But for us adults, it was great. And this year, we had the bags again, and they all had socks in them. And, and our response was, the first one that opened, we take turns, and the first one that opened would say, I wonder what it is, I wonder what it is, you know? And, and then we'd pull it out, and it's socks, and we were just really, yay, we got socks, that's great. And then the next one would have the bag, and we'd say, I wonder what it is. I wonder what that one is. And it'd be socks, we'd say, yay, it's socks, we got socks, that's great. You know why? We don't buy socks all year long because we're depending on 
We're depending on Lois to get us socks every year. I mean, it's got to be bad before we'll buy socks during the year. If it's anywhere close to Christmas, we're just going to tough it out with a hole in the sock till we get to Christmas and get our gifts. There was a British farmer named Maurice Wright who about 20 years ago uh, went to an auction at a farm that had been foreclosed on, and he bought a painting at the auction. Uh, it was a big, pretty big painting, and he bought it for a little under $4. And he kind of stuck it in the attic and forgot about it for a long time. And then he, one day they're doing, he had a, an accountant that was working with him on his taxes, and they were talking about their assets and trying to uh, make sure they accounted for everything. And he said, have you checked the attic? And he got in the attic, and he started pulling stuff out, and he said, well, I got this painting here. I don't know anything about it. And the guy said, well, it might be worth something. Let's take a picture of it and send it. You know, you could go to these places that can tell you if it's worth something or not. So they sent it to Christie's. If you've heard of it, it's an auction house in England uh, that's one of the top ones that appraises things and tells you what they're worth and oftentimes they would sell things for you at an auction and much to their surprise this painting was by a famous 19th century painter named Thomas Danielle and they came back and said it is a very valuable painting and they gave them a price on it in fact they said we'll be happy to sell it for you of course they take a percentage when they do it this painting that he paid less than $4 for sold at auction for over $90,000. He didn't recognize the value of what he had, did he? I mean, he had been scraping by, barely making it, and he had a painting in his attic the whole time worth over $90,000. And for a lot of people in the world, we celebrate Christmas and never realize the value of the gift that we have, the worth of God sending this gift to us at great price to himself so that we could have life, abundant and eternal life. This gift is more valuable than any other. But depending on how you view the value of this gift, it will determine your response to the gift. And today I want us to look at two primary responses of people in Scripture to the gift of this baby, uh, how different they were, and how they represent a lot of people on the earth today and how they respond to the gift of this baby at Christmas. The first one I want to look at is Herod in Matthew chapter 2. If you want to open up your Bibles there, Matthew chapter 2, we're going to pick up with verse 1. Look at the first 20 verses of Matthew chapter 2. Herod, his response was he was threatened by this gift. Why in the world would anybody be threatened by a baby? Why in the world would somebody rich and powerful have any reason to be threatened by this baby being born to this poor family in this little nowhere town called Bethlehem? Why would that be any threat to him at all? In fact, today in our country and around the world, there are people that are threatened by Jesus, by this gift. And they respond quite differently. When, you know, people respond differently when they're threatened. Well, let's look at how Herod responded. Matthew 2, beginning with verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? 
Now, that's the beginning hint as to why Herod was threatened. Herod was, at that time, king of the Jews. Now, by that time Herod was king, it was more a political position than anything else. You see, they were really ruled by Rome, but Rome had to work through a Jewish representative of the people, and Herod was the one that at that time was in the position of ruling that segment of Rome's population that, that were Jews, and so they had to work through Herod. They chose to work through Herod to try to keep the peace and deal with the Jews. So these magi traveled they had seen the star, remember? It appeared in the sky. They were studiers, evidently, of the stars, and they knew it meant something important. The birth, and they interpreted it to mean the birth of a king, and so they came and followed the star to come to see where the child was. But the star up in the sky, you know, it would be hard to find the exact location, and in their minds, Jerusalem is the capital of that area, and Herod would be the one in charge. So if anybody knew about the birth of a king, who should it be? Herod, the current king of that area. So they chose to travel there. Now you have to remember, the star appeared when the baby was born. So now some time has passed since the birth of the baby by the time they follow that star and get to Jerusalem. This is not the same night at the stable like you see pictured so many times in nativity scenes. This is later on. Most people believe it took several months for this journey to occur. So the baby's now a few months old at this time that had been born. At least a couple of months, scholars would agree, have taken, have passed for the travel to take place for these people to get to where the baby was. So they, they come and they, they go to the palace in Jerusalem where they are the house where they believe the king would be. And they, they ask the servants there uh, if they can answer uh, the king could answer for them, where is this king that has been born? And he calls him the king of the Jews, these wise men do. For Herod, that immediately would cause him to be upset. Uh, Herod was known as Herod the Great. Now, the only reason he was known as Herod the Great is because he made everybody call him that. Nobody thought he was great but Herod. Herod thought he was great, and he made everybody call him Herod the Great. Herod was known by, uh, historians have researched this and found out that Herod was known as one of the most brutal, cruel men to ever be serving as king of the Jews, to serve as a king anywhere. They said the most dangerous thing you could do, job or place you could have in life, the second most dangerous thing to do would be to work for Herod, the first most dangerous place you could have in this world would be a family member of Herod. See, when Herod took the position of king, he immediately had killed all the members of the Sanhedrin that were, that were part of the Sanhedrin at that time. He had them all executed, 50 of them executed right away so that he could put his own people in those positions, right? Got to get rid of the others. They may not, you know, they may not support me, most scholars believe Herod was paranoid, deeply, deeply paranoid. He didn't trust anybody, anyone, anywhere. He saw air threats everywhere around him. So he immediately killed those members of the Sanhedrin and replaced them with his own. 
They say he killed about 30 members of his own family during his reign, had them executed. It was dangerous to be connected to Herod, unless you called him Herod the Great and praised him and supported everything that he wanted to do. You didn't question this man. You certainly did not threaten his position. And so when the wise men ask, who knows where this baby is that's been born? He's the king of the Jews. Immediately, Herod sees a threat to him. Now, something you have to get in mind here is most scholars believe he's already at least 70 years old at this time. Maybe older but at least 70 years old by the dates of his reign and the age he would probably have been. They're thinking he's past 70 already, and this is a newborn baby, and he still sees this baby as a threat to him as the king. I mean, by the time this baby is around 20 years old, Herod's going to be over 90 years old. And yet he still sees this baby as a threat to him. So they say, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod heard this, he was disturbed. When we say somebody's disturbed today, you can mean it in a lot of different ways, can't you? At least two primary ways. We can mean he's disturbed that he's upset. We can mean he's disturbed like in the head, right? Herod was both. He was disturbed. He was agitated, but he's disturbed in the head, I think. He, he's not thinking clearly. He's, he's delusional, and he's so threatened that he believes this baby is actually a threat to him right now. But it says he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Now, the reason all Jerusalem would be disturbed is because when Herod gets disturbed, the potential is problems for everybody, right? I mean, if he's disturbed, he's got a history already uh, really doing terrible things. If he's disturbed, it means we could have some problems here with Herod. So all Jerusalem is disturbed with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. You see, he equated king with Messiah in the Jewish law, in the Jewish history. The prophets had spoken of the Messiah, the king. They equated those two things together. So he knew what they're talking about here could be connected to this prophecy concerning the Messiah. So he gets his leaders together and asks them where the Messiah was going to be born. And verse 5, they answer him, in Bethlehem in Judea. For that is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So he, his leaders there quote a prophecy to him that we've shared throughout this season about where the Messiah is a messianic prophecy. And even Herod's advisors recognize this as a messianic prophecy that if it was fulfilled, this child was going to come from, be born in Bethlehem. So then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. Because he, the star appeared when the baby was born. So he wanted to know, all right, when did the star appear? That's how we can get some timeline here on, on what's taking place because of what Herod does next, all right? He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me. Why? Herod says, So that I too may go and worship him. 
Not only was Herod a little delusional, he was certainly deceptive. He's lying boldly to these men saying, I want to go worship this child too. He had no intention of worshiping this child. In fact, he didn't want anybody being worshipped but him, ever. And so, because he was threatened, he's using deception to get the information. After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Now, give Mary and Joseph some credit. They're probably not still in the stable now, okay? Baby's a couple of months old. They're probably not still staying in the stable for two months. I'm sure they have found a place, a house, something more secure, something that offered greater comfort and care than the stable. So now they're probably in a home somewhere, and they follow the star to where it came over to place, the house where they were with that baby. It's even called a house here in this verse. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed on coming into the what? Stable, is that what it says? Where did they come into? The house. They saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasures, presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Hence we get the song, We Three Kings, right? Because how many gifts were there? Does that mean there are three kings? No. It just means there were three gifts. There could have been any number of magi. Could have been two. Could have been six. We don't know how many there were. Tradition has given them three names because we have traditionally said there were three. But the Bible never says there were three. It just says there were magi, plural, who came. So anything two or above is plural magi. So it could have been any number of magi that come to the house. We don't know for sure. But we do know they brought three gifts. Maybe two of them went in together on the gold. Two went in together on the frankincense. A couple of them went in together on the myrrh. And they pooled their money and got the gifts and came and brought the gifts to the house where the baby was. Now, I've done a message before over the years about these gifts and the significance of these gifts. They do have symbolic significance to them. Uh, the gold was a gift you would give to royalty, of course. And then frankincense was something that was used in worship uh, and the burning of incense in worship. And myrrh was uh, uh, an ointment uh, or uh, oil that they would use to anoint the body for burial when someone died. And they were all very expensive gifts. And you might be thinking, well, it seems inappropriate to give a baby these gifts. But, but don't you think this would have been co coming in very useful to Mary and Joseph? Later on, they've got to flee to Egypt to a whole other country. And they needed some funds. They needed a way to support themselves. The wise men just provided for them everything they were going to need for what was about to happen. Just coincidence, I'm sure. God had nothing to do with it. So I hope you recognize sarcasm when I use it. It says, uh, when they presented him the gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, and after having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Now, they were warned by God not to go back to Herod because if Herod found out the location of the child, what was his real intent? To kill him, to destroy him, for sure. And so God, protecting the baby and Mary and Joseph, warned the Magi not to go back to Herod with that information. It says in verse 13, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, 
he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. Herod is going to search for the child to do what? Kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. One more messianic prophecy. He's going to be born in Bethlehem, but he was going to be called out of Egypt. How was that going to happen? Well, God used a wicked person with evil intent to fulfill yet another prophecy concerning the Messiah, that he would come forth out of Egypt. Verse 16, the whole deceptive Herod. Listen, when Herod realized he'd been outwitted by the Magi, can you imagine that? Outwitting the king. He was furious. And he gave orders, this is how evil he was, to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Now, I think he gave himself some leeway. We're not sure exactly how long it had taken for the Magi to get there, how much time has passed, but to make sure he didn't miss one, he said, I want to kill all of them two years old and younger, the baby boys, boys that had been born in Bethlehem and its vicinity. Now, we don't know how far out he went with the vicinity, but he's just going house to house killing all baby boys two years old and younger because of how threatened he was by this baby. That's as evil as you can get, friends. Totally innocent children being slaughtered. And we can look at how evil that is, and in this country we're killing thousands of innocent babies every year through abortion. You cannot say they're not individual entities on their own. When Roe v. Wade was passed, we didn't have the ultrasound technology that we have today. Today, we can see the babies clearly. We can see that they move around, they have heartbeats, and they actually feel pain. And we kill them one after another all the time because we're threatened by them. The change that they're going to bring to our lives, the inconvenience that they're going to be to our lives. And we use arguments that don't stand up, like it's my body, I'll do what I want to with it. If it's just your body, why are they selling the body parts of the babies? For research. It's not just your body. There's another body there. And the parts are really valuable because it's they can do human research because they're actually human body parts that they can do research on. And they make thousands of dollars selling those every week. Don't tell me we're not as evil as this guy Herod that we act like is so evil. Human nature can be really evil when we are threatened by Jesus, the gift that God sent. This was said to, through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled when this happened. In verse 18, a voice is heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. 
He's saying this is a fulfillment of prophecy too. Uh, when he uses the, the term Rama or Ramah, it is the region around Bethlehem. That's what that region was called. So he's saying Bethlehem and vicinity, right? He killed all the babies two years old and younger there in that whole region of Ramah. And it fulfilled another prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he could come forth out of Egypt, just like the prophet said, and begin life to fulfill all the other prophecies that God had for this child. Why was Herod so threatened? Why are people today so threatened by God's plan and God's will and God's teaching and God's word and God's son? Why are they so threatened by that? I think there are a lot of reasons, but here's a few that I want us to look at today. One is, if, if Jesus is who he claimed to be, if this story is true and this is God come to earth, then here's the thing. Jesus is a threat to your power. He's a threat to your personal power. You see, if Jesus is who he claims to be, then that's God. And God came here. And God died and rose again for us. And God says, I, I have life and I, I can give you eternal life. And I can tell you how to live your life the best. And I have the authority to do that because I am God. I'm the all-powerful God. And if there is an all-powerful God, that's what, guess what that means about your power? It means you don't really have the power. No matter how much you want to claim it, no matter how much you want to hold on to it, no matter how much you're threatened by anybody that you think could take it away from you, you didn't have it to start with. There's a power greater than you if Jesus is the Jesus of Scripture. If this baby is who they're saying this baby is, then there is a power greater than us. And if you've determined to live your life your own way and not have anybody tell you anything, ain't nobody going to tell me nothing, right? If that's the attitude you're going to live by, you and Bela Ray Cyrus and little Nas X, if that's how you're going to live your life, then anybody that says, uh-uh, I've got the power, is a threat to you. If you don't want anybody to tell you nothing, how to live your life, what's okay and what's not okay, what's good and what's bad, you don't get to make those decisions if you're not the one in power. So Jesus, if he is who the Bible says he is, has the power that threatens you wanting to have the power. There was a guy who uh, had a mole on his chin. He decided to go to the doctor and get it checked out. So he goes to the receptionist and says, hey, what you're here for? He said, I got a mole. And they said, okay, uh, the nurse will be right out. So a nurse comes out and calls his name, says, come on back, take off all your clothes and wait in that room right there, sit on the table and wait. He says, well, I don't think I have to take off all my clothes. I just got a mole on my chin. I just want him to take, take off all your clothes, sit in there and wait till the doctor comes. I don't, all I need, take off all your clothes, sit on the table, wait for the doctor to come. Finally, he goes, okay, okay. So he goes into the room. There's already a guy sitting in there in his boxer shorts. He says, man, that nurse is a pit bull, isn't she? She said, tell me about it. I'm just a UPS guy. 
Power can go to your head, can't it? You give somebody a little power, all of a sudden they, they could go crazy with it. And Herod had gone crazy with his power and his desire to hold on to it, but we can do the same thing. We're so threatened by Jesus, we don't want anybody telling us how to live our lives that anything we're doing is wrong. In fact, in our society today, it's gotten worse. You can't tell anybody they're wrong about anything without being a hater, without not having, you know, you're not tolerant, you're not a kind person if you tell anybody anything is wrong at all with their lives. Why? Because it threatens their power, their desire to rule their own lives the way they want to rule it. Jesus is a threat to people's power. It's also a threat to your possessions if Jesus is who he claims to be. Because guess what? If he is who the Bible says he is, how much do you really own? None. He owns it all. So who gets to determine the use of those things? The owner? Yes. We become managers of what somebody else owns. And that translates into everything, material things, money, everything on this earth. We become managers of our time and our resources and our talents instead of the rulers and owners of all of those things. You see, it's a threat to our possessions. We can't just say it's mine, I'll do with it what I want. Whether it's our body or our money or our time or anything else. The Bible says you're not your own, you're bought with a price. The blood of the Son, Jesus this argument that it's your body to do with what you want doesn't fly in the face of Scripture. It doesn't. Not if you're a Christ follower. You're not your own. You're bought at a price. And the price was high. And that body belongs to Him. And that money, and that house, and that car, and that time, that you're wasting, it all belongs to him. It's also a threat to your pleasure. You see, we, we uh, want to be able to do whatever we think feels good, that makes us feel good, and not feel bad about it, not have anybody tell us it's the wrong thing. But God says some things that bring temporary pleasure actually are destructive in the long run. Well, he created us. He knows how everything works. I think he has some insight over things that might bring temporary pleasure but then cause great harm in the long run. So he threatens our desire to do those things that bring us temporary pleasure, and we want to be able to do them without any negative consequences. And I say it all the time. You're free to do whatever you want, but you're not free from the consequences of those choices. The consequences are still going to be there. You don't want them to be there, but they're still going to be there. And it's also a threat to your pride. See, Herod's upset because it's a threat to his pride. He wants to be seen as king, the only king, the only ruler of the Jews. His pride got in the way. And we let our pride get in the way, too. Um, didn't happen on this trip. I just made a trip with the family, a very quick trip. Uh, took them down to Jacksonville so Lois could have some time with her brother. He's in hospice care, probably won't be on this earth much longer. And we wanted her to be able to spend some time with him. So we made a quick trip down there, and uh, I came back last night. But on this uh, trip back, I'm coming back by myself. They were still staying down there. And uh, I went to get on the, uh, I had the GPS going in my car, right? Now, I argue with the GPS all the time. 
I do. The GPS told me to go a certain way and take this exit. I got to that exit and it was closed. And I thought, okay, what do I do now? And I thought, well, the GPS told me to go to the next exit and take it, turn around and come right back. And I thought, well, that's crazy. If the exit's closed, I'm going to be making circles all day long. And I'm arguing with the voice on the GPS. I have a nice female voice on my GPS. Please take the next exit. Well, I know I can take the next one, but I need this one, right? I'm arguing with the lady who recorded the GPS voice on my GPS in my car. But this time, I got my pride out of the way, and I took the exit, and I went left, and I went back on the same, the opposite direction, and the exit was open on that side. The entrance was open on that side, so I could get onto the expressway the way I needed to go coming the other way. But you see, there have been occasions, not many, but there have been occasions where my pride would not have let me do that, and I would have spent a lot of time circling Jacksonville in neighborhoods I shouldn't be in. Pride can cause us to do really, really bad things sometimes, not to admit that we're wrong. You see, when we really want to do something, our pride gets in the way if somebody tells us that's the wrong thing to do. And your pride, the Scripture says, can lead to your destruction. It can destroy you and your life. So that's one response, Herod's response. And I see a lot of people in the world today that when we celebrate Christmas and we talk about, you know, uh, as Christians wanting to spread the good news of the gospel, they, they rebel and they hate it and they fight against it. And there seems to be a growing number of people that, that want to, to uh, stop that effort to take Jesus to the world and take Jesus to the, to the people in our country. And, and they're telling Christians, you just need to keep that to yourself and not, and not share it and not push it on anything anybody else and, and you know why they're doing all that it's because they're threatened by it why would they want to take prayer out of school they're threatened by it why why would they want us to to take down the display of the nativity scene on a public uh, uh, at a public display at the courthouse it's because it's a threat to them they're threatened by it even atheists are threatened by jesus which amazes me they say they don't believe in him but they're threatened by anybody that does and wants to promote that but that's the way Herod was. He didn't believe Jesus was the king, but he was sure threatened by the idea that others were saying that Jesus is a king. Well, there was another response I want us to look at. It's found in Luke chapter 2, and it's Simeon's response. His response is not that he was threatened. His response was genuine worship of this child. Luke 2, beginning with verse 25. This is after Jesus has been born, after the time had passed for them to come to the temple to present him to God at the temple as they needed to do with every firstborn male child according to the law. It says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel." 
The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Simeon's about the same age as Herod, most scholars think. He's an older man. He had been told by the Holy Spirit of God that he would not die before he would be able to see with his own eyes the fulfillment of the prophecy concerning the coming of the Messiah, the Savior, the Anointed One. You see, for hundreds of years, they've been waiting for the coming of the Messiah. And and they had all these ideas about what it would be like and how it was going to happen, but Simeon wasn't trying to rule it out because it didn't happen the way they thought it was going to happen. Simeon accepts that the Holy Spirit has revealed to him, this is that child, this is that Messiah that was promised, that was coming. His response is not that he's threatened by it. He responds in several ways. First, he offered praise to God. You see, when you're not trying to rule your own life and not trying to say I'm right and and God's wrong and you're not trying to, to get God out of your life, when you really want the help of God, you understand that he loves you and he wants only what's best for you, then you're not threatened by God bringing to you revelation and instruction and care and provision through the means that he would choose. And Simeon wanted from God that provision and that deliverance that God said he could bring. And so when that that happened, his response is praise. You see, that's the difference. Herod is threatened. But Simeon, Simeon wanted to honor God for keeping his promises. Simeon has decided this is something to be celebrated. So he offered praise to God, and then he acknowledged God's faithfulness as he offered the praise. God, you've kept your promise just like you told me, just like you said before I was going to die, I would be able to see the fulfillment of the prophecy of the coming of the Messiah. And now he's holding this baby and saying, I see now you are a faithful God, and I want to praise you for that. You see, when you know the faithfulness of God, you're not threatened by him. You're not threatened by his word. You're not threatened by the restrictions of scripture. You're not threatened by the promises or the warnings there. You understand they're there because a faithful God loves you and makes sure he takes care of you. So you can praise him when one comes to rule the way God rules because you recognize the value of the gift. He acknowledged God's faithfulness and he recognized that this baby was the source of salvation. Not just for him, but he said it would be a light to the Gentiles, right? And the glory of your people, Israel. He recognized that this child was going to rule in such a way that he would sacrifice himself to give life to those that he ruled. Why would you be threatened by a gift like that? Why would you be threatened by someone who loves you so much he would die for you? That's not something to be threatened by. That's something to offer praise for. God is faithful to keep his promises. And, and when, the, when Simeon said, 
this is going to be a, a light to the Gentiles too? I mean, that was radical for a Jewish leader at that time to say something like that. You see, they had created this idea that the Messiah was coming just for the Jews. And you know what that would do for most of us? It would leave us out. We may have a Jew with us here, I don't know, maybe more than one who is Jewish. But most likely, most of you are not. We are the Gentiles in this verse. And he came for a light, not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles too, for all of us. And the Jews weren't so comfortable with that, but God said that was his plan all along, that this child would bless all people, not just his people Israel. He recognized, Simeon did, that this baby is the source of salvation for everyone in the world. You see, if Herod could have gotten his pride out of the way, he could have recognized that too. If Herod could have trusted God's faithfulness and God's provision and God's care, he could have seen that too. He could have recognized this child the way Simeon recognized this child. But he was too prideful and stubborn to even consider that this child could be his Savior. And many in the world today are so rebellious that they won't even consider the possibility that that child we celebrate at Christmas could actually be their salvation. And then he prophesied the exposing of human hearts that this child would bring. Look at verse 35. So that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Now he's saying to Mary, because of this child, your soul is going to be pierced. You're going to be hurt deeply. And you can be sure when Mary saw her son hanging on that cross, her soul was pierced. But he said, the hearts, the thoughts of many hearts are going to be revealed. And that's what I want to close with today. Your response to this gift reveals your heart. When I opened up the socks and I was like, all right, cha-ching, I got socks. That's great. It shows that my heart's genuine. I really wanted socks. That's a great thing, right? This is so much more important. What you, how you respond to this gift that's the most important response of your life. You see, rejecting this gift is rejecting the life and the salvation that this gift brings. Rejoicing over this gift, welcoming this gift, reveals that your heart is open and ready to receive God's love and care and provision into your life. I mean, you don't want to rule your own life. You're willing to submit to the rule of a God who loves you so much that he would send you this gift maybe there's somebody here today or somebody listening today and you've celebrated Christmas and all the fun stuff but you've never really accepted and received the gift the only way to receive this gift according to scripture is to repent which means you got to get your pride out of the way and confess your sin you see, if you don't confess your sin, you can't turn from it. If you're not sorry for it, you're not going to want to turn from it. But if you're willing to do that, to turn from sin, to turn toward him as the Lord of your life and accept his lordship over you, then today you can receive the gift of life that this child brings for you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that today, as we talk about the response to the gift, 
We're reminded that even today, so many people, so many people have the response of Herod to this gift. So many people are threatened by Jesus, by people who follow Jesus, by the church that Jesus established. They're threatened because it means that if they're right, they don't get to rule their own lives. But Father, I pray that today, if there's somebody here who understands, finally, that not ruling your own life is really better because you love us so much and you're so much wiser than us and you only want what's best for us to, that, to submit to your rule is the greatest blessing, the greatest gift that we could ever receive. And if there's somebody ready to take that step today, I pray that today they would accept the gift of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.